Well, welcome back, everybody, for a continuing part of our series, the Explaining the Faith series. I'm Father Chris Alar. It's great to be back. I've been gone for several days in Michigan, and thank you to everybody who joined us last week for our talk on the Holy Spirit, and we're excited. I'm, I'm so happy to be back with all of you who are members of our Marian family. I know so many of you by name now and, and comments, and so we're great. It's great to be here with you. I think it's the 31st or 32nd straight week that we've been doing this. And today we're going to be talking about, as you saw on the slide, understanding Jesus in a new way. Doesn't mean it's new in theology. The church has always taught this, but it's new to many of us, including myself, when I went to seminary. So let's begin with a prayer. <clears throat> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you send your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, down upon us as knowledge and wisdom himself to open our minds to receive this knowledge to then go to our hearts to live it in love. And through the intercession of St. Faustina, who told us that you, Jesus, are love and mercy itself, we ask for this and all blessings upon all of our Marian family who are joined with us. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you, everybody, for all the well wishes, the comments, the emails. Um, I'm going to be doing the Mass tomorrow here at live stream at 9, so I'm back to be, as I said, um, it's nice to be back. I was in Detroit. I really wasn't vacationing, although I don't know if Brother Mark can zoom in on it. Um, I don't know if he can show you this, but this was a T-shirt that uh, is a memento, and uh, I thought it was quite funny. It uh, was a, a slogan that says, I'm so bad I vacation in Detroit. And so that's where I was. I was in Detroit. Thank you for all the prayers for my mom. She's hanging in there. Um, I love her dearly, and God bless all of you for praying for her. And, uh, but I really wasn't vacationing. My parents could tell you I was working the whole time. The exciting thing is, is I was able to finish this book, which is going to be the first book in the new series called Explaining the Faith. So all these talks, um, we've got coming new DVDs that I've been saying we'll be releasing the following talks after the first 13, and Brother Mark can show you on the screen what I mean here. The DVDs we've already released in this first 13 talks, you can get at 800-462-7426 or visit shopmercy.org or live stream it at thedivinemercy.org slash explaining the faith. We'll be releasing those talks starting after the 13th soon, and then I'll be releasing a book, and the first one will be on Divine Mercy, part of the Explaining the Faith series. So all exciting. Now, why am I excited about today? Because today we're, we're getting, okay, two weeks ago we did the Trinity in who the Trinity is and our understanding. Then I decided to go in reverse order. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit because this is the way back to God the Father. So we, we talked about the Holy Spirit. This week, we're gonna talk about the second person of the Trinity. And next week, we're gonna talk about God the Father in the Old Testament, which is so hard to understand for many people. We're gonna try to explain that for you. And then after that, the Ten Commandments and the Seven Deadly Sins, which help us to live a better life. All right, so let's start looking 
at the second person of the Trinity, understanding Jesus in a whole new way, again, not new to theology or Christ uh, uh, church teaching, but new to many of us who haven't heard these things. We know this. Let's look at our, our next slide. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus Christ. Jesus. All right, you may know this. Let's do some summary, but we're going to get into stuff you may not know. The word Jesus means God saves, okay? He is the Messiah, but what does Messiah mean? Messiah is, is the one that's going to deliver the people, but the actual meaning is the one anointed with oil. So who's the one anointed? Jesus. How was he anointed? With oil. What's the oil? The Holy Spirit. We talked about this last week. Jesus is anointed because, as we said last week, the Holy Spirit is his anointing. The Holy Spirit is the oil. But Jesus is the one anointed. And now he's going to take us back to the Father. That's what this is all about today. So who was Jesus? Now, here's where it gets interesting. Even non-Christians will say that they believe Jesus was a good man. Whether or not they believe he was God or not, they don't all agree. But almost everyone agrees Jesus was a good man. I'm going to show you right now that if you believe Jesus was a good man, you also have to believe he was God. Well, Father, I know good men who are not God. I'm going to explain it. Okay? He claimed he was God. So if he was not God, he couldn't be a good man. He'd be a liar. And so Jesus wanted everyone to believe that he was God, and he wanted people to worship him. Well, Father, I don't know about that. Yes, he did. In the Bible, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Thus, saying something no Jew would ever say. No Jew would ever say this, dare to speak it. He claimed to forgive people's sins. To the Jews, they believed nobody could do that except God. So Jesus was claiming this. Jesus speaks and acts in the very person of God, and no one else had ever done that before or since, especially for the Jews. So everyone agrees he was a good man? Yeah. You believe he was a good man? Yeah. But a good man would never do those things. Say what he said, unless he was who he said he was. Does that make sense? All right. There are two possibilities here. Either Jesus is speaking the truth or he is not. If he speaks the truth, he is God and the case is closed. We must believe him and we must worship him. Now, if he did not speak the truth and he is not God, but a mere man, he would then be a bad man. Because again, he would not be speaking the truth. In fact, he would have been a very bad man, either morally or intellectually, because nobody said what he said. So, if he knew he was not God, but said he was, then he is morally bad. 
lying to deceive you and all generations since him into blasphemy. That's actually why he was crucified. Now, if he sincerely thought he was God, but really wasn't, then he's intellectually bad, even insane. Now, no one, though, who I would think could read the Gospels could come and think that he is morally corrupt or insane. The love, the human wisdom, all of these things, the attractiveness of Jesus, all emerge from the Gospels, no matter who you are. If you're reading those Gospels, it doesn't matter who you are, I think you could see that. So the question becomes, who invented Christianity? We Catholics claim Jesus Christ did. Many people say, no, it wasn't. Well, if, if it wasn't Jesus, who was it? Who invented it? Peter? The 12 apostles? His other followers after he died? Who invented it? And mainly for what reason? This is a key question. It couldn't have been people sincerely confused that really believed it. I had some people say to me, well, Father, I think that they really believed it, the apostles. They were just sincerely confused. No, no Jew confuses a creator with a creature or God with man. No Jew also confused a dead body with a resurrected one. None of us would. So let's look at the next slide. These are the grave cloths. This is the tomb, or tomb like it, but this would be the grave cloths. Notice, now this is just a, a remade um, reenactment of the tomb. Of course, this is not the actual tomb with grave cloths, but notice how it looks is how it was described in the Bible. Let's look at this. The grave clothes were not disarranged. They were lying neatly, still folded, not just thrown off. Okay, so let's look at this. Okay, 75 pounds of spices are what most believe would have been, or traditionally what was put in a body at the time of Christ's crucifixion. If there were 75 pounds of spices wrapped up with the, Jesus, with the body of Jesus inside the shroud, Jesus, if he wasn't really dead and got up, would have pretty much had to really struggle to get out of it. When he did finally get out of it, that grave cloth would have been a shambled mess, maybe even torn to shreds. And the sudarium, the face cloth, would not have been nicely rolled up. Again, if Jesus wouldn't have really died but actually woke up later, and if somebody had stolen the body, this is what a lot of non-Christians claim, they would never have left the clothes behind, let alone folded them. How many robbers in your houses would steal all your silverware but then fold up the napkins and leave them behind for you? <laughs> Doesn't happen, all right? No thief would have taken the time to unwrap the corpse and then fold the clothes. Here's the point. In those days, robbers stole the linen and left the body. The body was of no value to them. 
The linen was of value, was a fine woven cloth. So really what would have happened if, the, if robbers stole this body was they would have taken the linen. And I should have said robbers not steal the body, but if robbers broke into the tomb, they would have stolen the linen, not the body, because that is what had value, not the other way around. Here the body's gone and the linen is left. And so that's not what would have happened. And plus the blood stains on the shroud of Turin are not smeared in the least. If Jesus, if that body, even if he would have tried to get out of it himself, or if somebody would have pulled that linen off of his body to get the body out, there would have been blood smears. There's blood on the shroud, but it's not smeared at all. This is fascinating. And so it was as if the body simply evaporated from underneath the cloth. So this is all proof positive that I don't think these apostles were confused. Another big thing for me, and I talked about this in seminary, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Now, no offense, ladies, but if you're trying to pull off a hoax, the last thing you were going to use in first century Palestine was women witnesses because they weren't legally valid. Only men were legally valid witnesses. So the first witnesses to the resurrection, again, no offense, ladies, but would not have been in first century Palestine a hoax. A person doing a hoax would not have picked women to do that. So if you're going to do a hoax, this was not the way to do it. And there was no reason. What, what reason would these apostles or disciples have had to do this? Why would they have invented the whole elaborate lie of Christianity with absolutely no motive? What was their motive? Here's the thing. You know what they got out of it? And they knew they were going to get this. You know what came out of their hoax if it was a hoax? Here's what came out of it. Their family and friends disowned them. And I'm talking about the apostles and the followers here. Their friends and families disowned them. Their social standing, their possessions, and political privileges were all taken away by the Jews and the Romans. They were persecuted, imprisoned, whipped, tortured, exiled, crucified, eaten by lions, and cut to peace by gladiators. <laughs> Does this sound worth going through for a lie? I don't think so. The only way anybody would go through this would be for the truth. Nobody is willing to die for a lie. Only the truth. The growth of Christianity makes no sense if Jesus Christ and the resurrection was a lie or a hoax. Some people say Jesus didn't even exist. There's no way millions over the centuries would go to their death for him if he wasn't true. They were timid, these apostles were timid and even hiding, right, until Pentecost. They weren't all about out there proclaiming. If they were doing a hoax, they would have went running out of the tomb after the third day, running around Jerusalem, trying to proclaim their hoax. No, they weren't. They were hiding in the room, terrified. That tells you that they weren't up to something. They were scared. 
And it took several miracles, the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost, for them to get the strength and the courage to go out and start preaching. This is amazing. And so, this shows who Jesus was, unlike anyone in human history. Nobody else claimed or did what he did, and this is what we're here to talk about today. So who was this Jesus that so many people would be willing to die for? Let's look at our next slide. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God who became Savior, who became man, who became our friend, who became or will become our spouse. Jesus is God to Savior, to man, to friend, to spouse. Now, last week we talked about you cannot love what you do not know. The intellect, our faith teaches us, our thinking comes before the will, our acting. Before you act, you think about it, even if it's for a split second. And so we cannot love what we do not know. So we have to start with Christology. This is a a series of courses I took in seminary and a lot of what I'm teaching. You guys, part of our Marian family are actually going to seminary. That's what's so awesome if you watch this whole series with us. And we only do one a week so you can catch up hopefully. And like I said, this is like the 31 or 32nd one we've done. You're basically getting a seminary education. And that's so awesome that you're here as part of our Marian family to do this with us. And so the first thing we need to do on that list is see Jesus as God. Okay, why? The world was created Okay, the Father is the creator, but he created through the word. He spoke all into being. That word, as we said last week, is Jesus Christ. Now, this world was created through the word of God, who is Jesus, or is the second person of the Trinity. Not Jesus yet. And he sustains everything in life and provides us everything we ever need. Now... He is also our savior because right after creation, as you heard in my other talks, it took Adam and Eve all the 10 minutes to get broken. Mankind got messed up. So then Jesus was born where a promise was made way back in the garden that a savior would be born. This is beautiful. Saving us from eternal death after this fall. And how was the savior brought to us? Through the incarnation. All right, so now he's God. Now he becomes Savior, born as Jesus. Now he then died for us because he loves us. This is the essence of who Jesus is, love and mercy. And we'll get to that, as St. Faustina says. So we see in the divine image, divine mercy image we'll talk about. Now, the next thing was, After Jesus, who is God, became our Savior and was now born a man, he then said, no greater love hath a man than to lay down his life for his friends. So this God, who became our Savior, who then was born a man, has now become our friends. And he says, no greater love hath a man than to lay down his life for his friends. So when we understand Jesus is a man, 
We need to see him as our friend. That's why some of the most powerful prayer is just speaking to Jesus like you would a friend, not being afraid. So as a man, he is our friend. But remember, friendship is a two-way street. We seem to get in the tendency that our prayer becomes, Jesus, I need this, I need that. Help me here, help me there. That's good. But prayer, excuse me, but friendship is a two-way street. This is why we need to console Jesus and actually show him mercy. Not just him to us, but us to him. And we'll talk about that. Finally, what is the best marriages in the world? When you marry your best friend, your spouse. And Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. You've heard me talk about this many times. The bride is the spouse the church, us. So the Bible begins with a wedding, Adam and Eve, man and woman, and ends with the wedding in the book of Revelation, you've heard me say before, at the mass. So who is Jesus? He is God. He is Savior who became a man, who became our friend, who becomes our spouse. That's exactly what you found in your soulmate. A person, a man, became your friend and then became your spouse. <clears throat> Powerful. No other religions care about the ontological or metaphysical makeup of their leader <clears throat> like we Catholics do. Do you know Muhammad said, I saw a vision. Buddha said, I found a new path. Now, those religions admit their leader is not God. The Muslims admit Muhammad isn't God. The Buddhists admit Buddha is not God. One said, I saw a vision. The other said, I found a new path. They can't save because only Jesus died on the cross. Jesus doesn't say, I found a way or a new way. Jesus says, I am the way. Let's look at our first and only video today, which is only a minute long, but it basically summarizes in a great way. I can't believe how well this was done in one minute on who is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, or Yeshua in his own Aramaic language, was a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. The earliest accounts of his life, called the Four Gospels, come from the eyewitness testimony of his followers. Jesus grew up on the scriptures of his people Israel that say God chose Abraham to bring his blessing to the nations. Jesus said the story was being fulfilled in him and that he was the one bringing God's reign to our world. He called this the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus announced God's kingdom to the poor and the sick, and he accused Israel's leaders of being corrupt. He challenged them in Jerusalem, fully knowing that this would get him killed. But his plan was to be enthroned as king by dying for the sins of his people. Later, the followers of Jesus visited his burial place, but it was empty. Then Jesus appeared alive to many, saying that he was the king of the world, opening a new future for humanity. Then he sent his followers to spread the good news of his reign around the world. Isn't that a great little summary? You know, as we said, either you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, a member of the Trinity, or we don't. Now. This is why I love, and I talked about this a long time ago in one of my talks really briefly, but our next slide, Pascal's Wager. 
<laughs> this, is, this is awesome. Basically, Pascal said, it is safer to believe in God even if there is no proof that one exists. All right, what did he mean by that? Okay, Pascal's wager, basically you are wagering your eternal salvation and your fate on whether or not you believe in God. Now remember, believe in God, unlike the Protestants, we, we Catholics believe that it, it's more than just thinking he exists. I mean, the demons believe God exists. But to believe in God is to be a follower, to actually follow his commandments. So here's Pascal's wager. If you believe in God, you have everything to gain if you are right. You have eternal life. And you have nothing to lose if you are wrong. Because after death, nothing happens. So you risk nothing but you have a chance to gain everything if you're right, and you risk nothing if you are wrong. Now, conversely, if you don't believe in God, you have nothing to gain if you are right. After death, it's nothingness. You've gained nothing, but you have everything to lose if you are wrong. And there really is a God. This Pascal's wager is awesome. So if Jesus is God, and that's a great bet, we must dedicate our lives to knowing him and loving him. Okay, so here's the question. We must love him. Now, in fact, a lot of people say, Father, why does the Bible say that I got to hate my family to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus? It says, unless you hate your mother and your brother and your sister, you can't be my disciple. I've had people tell me that's why they're not Christians. No, the hate there does not mean to despise. In the original language, hate means in this case to just love less. What it means is your order of importance has got to be in your life, God first, spouse second, children third, in that order. All right, now, let's go back to our slides. To know Jesus, we start with the Trinity. Let's go back to our famous slide we've shown the last couple of weeks. Who is God? Right in the center, Okay, you have God is, up to the left, the Father. God is, to the right, the Son. And God is, to the bottom, the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. So, this gives us a little insight that they are distinct, but not inseparable. All right, remember who the Father is. Remember who the Holy Spirit is, and remember who the Son is. Now, I've talked about the Holy Spirit last week. Today, we're talking about the Son. Tomorrow, or excuse me, next week, we'll talk about God the Father, especially the Old Testament. Now, when the Father thinks, remember we talked about this the last couple of weeks. When the Father starts thinking, he begets the Son. That's knowledge. He's thinking, all right? And from the Father, thinking, we see our next slide, the Son. When the Father thinks, he thinks the word, the thought, the knowledge, the wisdom. That's the Son. That's our next slide. Now, he begets the Son. Now, when the Father loves, who does he love? He loves the Son. And that love between the Father and the Son is so powerful that from it proceeds the Holy Spirit, 
So the Holy Spirit is that love freely given between the Father and the Son. If this is confusing, go back to my last two talks, one on the Trinity, one on the Holy Spirit. I explained all this more detail. Now, this is what makes us human. Knowledge and the free will to love. It's what makes us human beings. We think we are rational creatures unlike the animals. And we love unlike the animals. Now, animals do have unconditional love when they come and smile at you, even no matter how bad a day you've had. But I'm talking, you know what I mean, true intimacy, right? Now, we are in the image of God with knowledge and the free will to love. So, why was it the second person, the Son who became incarnate? Why wasn't it the Father or the Holy Spirit? that became on this earth walking around. Okay, it is fitting that it was the son who became a man because knowledge was the key starting gift given to mankind. Let's look at our next slide. What was in the garden that got Adam and Eve in trouble? People always say the tree of life. They ate from the tree of life. No, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be like God. Now, in the garden, man was seeking knowledge. And so now what did God do? He delivered it. Not in the form of an apple, but he delivers it in the best way. The son. In the form of a man. It's almost like the father said, let me offer you what you really want, but sought inordinately. You messed up. So, God gave us his son. Let's look at our next slide. Jesus Christ, who is wisdom and knowledge. That's right from the Bible. He's knowledge and wisdom itself, the highest of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom. Man is perfected in wisdom. We talked about this last week in the Holy Spirit. It's one of the gifts, the best gift. And since he is a rational creature, he has wisdom. Animals are awesome. I love animals, but they don't have wisdom. All right? But when man has wisdom, he is rational. And he learns the word of his... I should, I should go back and say, what makes us perfection, what perfects us in wisdom, is receiving and learning the word of God. Now we've just received it in the form of Jesus Christ. That's the word, the second person of the Trinity who wasn't Jesus before the incarnation. Now he is Jesus, the embodiment in flesh of the second person of the Trinity. Before he was just the spirit of the second person of the Trinity. Now he's wrapped in flesh of man. Now, this man is perfected and all of us mankind is perfected in wisdom and we are rational when we receive and learn that word of God, it is the same as a disciple who is instructed, not destructed, instructed by receiving and learning the word of his master. Like Socrates taught Plato. Plato learned as a disciple from the word of his master, Socrates. And then Aristotle, I think the greatest of them all, learned from Socrates, uh, Plato. So this is how they learn. Now, the Father gave us the ultimate wisdom of the word of how to learn, the wisdom. 
So the Father created the world through the Word, His thinking. And when you think, how is your thinking manifested? Through your words. And that He spoke creation into being, God the Father. So the Father who spoke creation into being through the Word, how would He best repair that broken world? The Father would best repair His creation by the same Word W-O-R-D, the eternal word, through which he first created that world. So if the Father created the world through his spoken word, let it be, the best way to fix it and to repair it is through that same word. Now, it's also fitting that the Son became incarnate that it was the son, because we too are adopted sons. We are not the father, we are sons. So what better way for us to relate to a father than a son himself? The second person is the son. There's no better way for a son to learn, and we are all adopted sons, than from another son. And so we can also inherit the kingdom of the father like he did. This is powerful stuff. All right. So let's look at our next slide. What is the meaning of the incarnation? The incarnation also makes sense because the Redeemer had to be both God and man. So why is the incarnation needed? Why did God need to become a man? Because redemption required that the Redeemer be both God and man. Why? All right. A man can only make satisfaction for himself but not the entire human race for something as big as the fall. There was no way as huge as a, as, a, as a wound that was created by the fall in the garden could a single man fix it. All right, the entire human race needed to be fixed now. And a single man couldn't do it after the fall. The damage was so immense that only God could fix it. Only God could pay the debt. The problem was God didn't owe it. So here's the point. Man did it, so man should fix it. But man's not capable of fixing it. Only God could fix it. So remember, that's why incarnation happened is because this Redeemer had to be both God and man. Powerful enough to fix it, hence he's God. A man to fix it because it's a man who broke it, hence he became also a man. And this is the incarnation. It's also really tradition why a third of the angels, it says in the book of Revelation, fell from the sky. A third of the angels fell that day. Not two-thirds, not a fifth, not a fourth, a third. Why? Tradition with a small t says a third of the angels adored the Father, a third of the angels adored the Son, and a third of the angels adored the Holy Spirit. And so guess what third fell from the sky? The third that adored the son, because it was announced he would become a man, and the men at the time, mankind was below the angels by, by nature. But by grace, and now the incarnation, man has been elevated above the angels. This is in, in, incredible. All right, so we have to realize what's going on here. Now, let's go back to the intellect and will. We all have an intellect, we think, and we have a will, we act. But what about Jesus? Did he have a human intellect? 
a human will, a divine will, a divine intellect? What did Jesus Christ have? All right. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, always had a divine intellect and a divine will, shared with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But at the incarnation, he assumed a human intellect and a human will. Let's look at our next slide. Can anyone explain the hypostatic union? Well, we're about to try. What is the hypostatic union? It's where that divine nature in the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, united with human nature and was born of a woman and became Jesus Christ. The two natures are united in the person of Christ. Now, in my Mary talk, if you want this in more detail, you can go back and find it. But I asked the question, is Jesus Christ a human person? And everybody at my talks yells, yes. And I say, no. Now, before you write the bishop and turn me in for heresy, listen to, hear me out. Now, from all of eternity, we had one God and three persons. We had the Father, who is a person, the Son, who is a person, and the Holy Spirit, who is a person. Three persons. If Jesus Christ was also a human person, you'd have four persons in the Trinity. But we don't have four persons in the Trinity. So, Father, what are you talking about? This divine person, the second person of the Trinity, who had a divine nature for all eternity, divine intellect and a divine will, came to earth, this one person, the second person of the Trinity, and assumed a human nature, a human intellect, and a human will. But, and that's the hypostatic union, the catechism defines Jesus Christ as one person, two natures. So Jesus Christ is one person, two natures. This isn't me making this up. Look it up in the catechism. Jesus Christ is that second person of the Trinity, the God divine person who came to earth, who already had a divine nature and in the hypostatic union assumed a human nature, meaning intellect and will. So he is a divine person who had a divine nature but now he accepts a human nature. So we say he is fully God in his nature, fully man in his nature. So don't say Father Chris didn't say Jesus is fully man. I said he's fully man in his nature. He's fully God in his nature, but he's only one divine person. That's why when Mary gave birth to that one person, that person is divine. We call Mary the mother of God. Not because she created him, but she gave birth to the second person of the Trinity who had a divine nature who now assumes a human nature. This is beyond incredible. Jesus Christ is one person. That person is divine. He always had a divine nature. Now he assumes a human nature in the hypostatic union. He is fully God and fully man in his nature. Beautiful. So now he has two intellects. Jesus Christ has two wills. He has a divine intellect, which he always had, and a divine will, which he always had. Now he has a human will and a human intellect. 
Is this human nature? So, I have a question for you. Did he know all things? Yes, Jesus knew everything. Well, sort of. He still had to learn. Let's look at our next slide. What is the type of knowledge? This comes right out of the Summa. I studied the Summa for 12 years, and I'm summarizing it in these talks for you so that you are like you went to seminary with me. There were three types of knowledge. And please, when you send your emails, I, I'm sorry, I've been spending a lot of time this week arguing with people who are telling me God is not a trinity. God is not a trinity. Please, I can't spend too much more time than I've been doing on that. I'm here to teach the tenets of the Catholic faith, what's given. And let's go back to the slide. So sorry, what the Catholic Church teaches is there are three types of knowledge in Jesus Christ. There is acquired knowledge, infused knowledge, and the beatific vision or divine knowledge. Let's talk about this. All right. How come it says that Jesus in the scriptures had to learn and he grew in wisdom? Well, if you grew, that means you didn't know everything to begin with. Jesus learned things in a human way. He had to learn to be a carpenter. That's his acquired knowledge. He fully let himself be man in his human intellect and learn in a human way. Then he also had infused knowledge because the Bible says he knew what other people were thinking. He knew what the Pharisees were thinking. And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. He knew what he was thinking. This is divine being informing, or excuse me, the divine informing the human intellect. So he had infused knowledge. And then finally, he had the beatific vision or divine knowledge. As a divine person, he beheld the beatific vision of God and he knew all things. So in this way, he did know all things. But if you say, did Jesus know how to speak Chinese? The answer would be no, because in his acquired knowledge, in his human knowledge, he didn't let his full beatific vision or his divine knowledge inform his full human intellect. He kept some separation there because he wanted to be fully man and learn as men would learn. But in a way, he did know all things through the beatific vision, the divine knowledge. Remember, he has two intellects here, human and divine. Another reason why that we knew that he chose not to always let his divine intellect inform his human intellect is remember in the scripture, it says only the father knows when the last day will be. That doesn't mean that that the second person of the Trinity doesn't know, the Son of Man doesn't know. In his human intellect, he didn't know. He purposely um, limited that. All right, the, what about Jesus being baptized? Did Jesus need to be baptized? No, but he received baptism. Why? Because he wanted to bless the waters and give the example for others to do it. Now what's funny is he received baptism at 30 years old by John. 30 is a very interesting number. Do you know that Joseph, the son of Jacob, was 30 when he was made king of Egypt or ruler of Egypt? Did you know David was 30 when he was made king of Israel? Did you know Ezekiel was 30 when he began to prophesy? So 30 is a perfection. I think I've read somewhere. I'm speculating here. I have not confirmed. I've worked tons of hours on these talks confirming everything. But I thought I read that three times 10 is a perfect number because it's the Trinity times the 10 commandments. I don't know if that's true, but just what I remember reading. Now, 
This is a form of perfection. So Jesus was perfected in a way at age 30. Now, if he was perfect, how could he suffer? How could he suffer things like hunger, thirst, pain, even death? Those sufferings were in themselves the punishment for the sin that Jesus put on his shoulders. He didn't commit the sin, but he bared the weight of that sin. So he did suffer things like hunger, thirst, pain, and death. But as a man, however, he did not have the effects of original sin because he didn't have original sin. So he didn't get sick. He didn't get disease. He didn't get the coronavirus. He didn't have any deformities. Well, Father, was he tempted? This is a good question. Jesus did not have concupiscence because that's a result of our fallen nature. He didn't have this raging, violent feeling that he wanted to go hurt somebody because they upset him or this lustful overtake of his, of his emotions and his passions because he wanted to have sexual relations with a woman. He didn't go through concupiscence. But Father, the gospel says he was tempted. He was tempted from without, not from within. We have to face that because of concupiscence as a result of original sin, which Jesus didn't have. But then you say, well, geez, Father, that was a lot easier for Jesus. No, because he bore the weight of all the sins like he did commit them, even though he didn't. This is amazing. All right, so we know that Christ, as a man, suffered. But we should add that it was voluntary. He suffered voluntarily to redeem mankind because he was not guilty and he chose to suffer, that act merited grace. And as the head, Jesus is the head, who's the body we are, when Jesus chose to suffer voluntarily, that grace flowed from the head to the body, which is us. This is why when you suffer because of your sins, it's not as meritorious, like if I go to jail because I killed somebody and I'm suffering in jail, that's not really meritorious. But if I'm suffering from a natural sickness of something I didn't do and I offered up for my loved ones, that is meritorious. Or if I willingly, like, like Maximilian Colby, go to die for someone else and some crime he didn't commit, that grace is given to someone else or can be offered for someone else. As the head who suffered voluntarily, that merited grace for the rest of the body who is us. Now, the passion then is a superabundant atonement for the sins of mankind. This we should meditate on. Remember 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 said, He is the propitiation for our sins, meaning the atonement. And not only for ours, but those of the whole world. What does that sound like? That's the chaplet of divine mercy. It's scriptural. All right, however, man's individual responsibility for his acts were not taken away, nor was free will nullified, but the passion removed original sin, which made us able to go to heaven. So, man obtains these graces for heaven through our faith in the receiving of the sacraments and praying. Prayers and the sacraments are given power. They are made efficacious by the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why we need the church. 
for our salvation because it's in the church you receive those sacraments which are made powerful, real, by the passion death of Jesus Christ. All right, but then why did Jesus have to die? God could have forgiven our sins. People always answer, Father, Jesus died to forgive our sins. True, but why? He could have forgiven your sins without a cross. All right, let's look at our next slide. Let's go to Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas said, this is why Jesus died on the cross. One, as the penalty for sin is death. You've heard me say that. The wage of sin is death, Paul tells us. Two, to prove that he was a true man and he died. Did God die on the cross? We'll talk about that in a minute. Three, to deliver man from the fear of death because we know there is something greater and that is coming up. <laughs> That's number five, actually. But number four is to teach us to die spiritually to sin and then number five, to instill us the hope of the resurrection from the dead. This is awesome. And that leads us to our next two slides of Thomas Aquinas. What does Thomas Aquinas say? Let's put up our next slide. If God just forgave our sins, which we said he could have done without going to the cross. If God just forgave our sins without his son paying the price, meaning the cross, we would not have been given the many benefits that flow to us from the passion. That's what I just described. When the head merited that grace, it flowed to the body, us. In other words, we would have been redeemed, meaning forgiven, but not glorified, meaning reconciled back to God. He just would have forgiven us and thrown us out the door. I forgive you, I'm not gonna hurt you, but you're on your own. No, he glorified us. Next slide. God wanted us to partake of his divine nature. Glorification. This is glorification. Which is a gift that goes beyond the forgiveness of sins, which is redemption. All right. What does all this mean? A long time, a long, long time ago, I can remember, remember that song. I said that mercy is greater than forgiveness. Redemption is forgiveness. We have been forgiven of our sins. But instead of just forgiving us and throwing us out the door, God brought us back as sons. He let us share in his divine life. That is glorification. And that is through his mercy. That's why mercy is actually greater than forgiveness. This is incredible. All right? Let's keep going. We're on a roll. Look at, look at Brother Mark's next picture. Brother Mark takes our photographs out here. If you haven't gotten some of our calendars from the National Shrine of Divine Mercy, they are incredible. You can call our 800 number and get the calendar for next year. These are beautiful images. This is one that Brother Mark took. This is not a painting or, or, or a brush stroked or what do you call it, airbrush. This is the actual picture Brother Mark took. And I always ask, you know, first of all, why did Jesus die on the cross? We just said it, to pay our penalty for sin. And sin, the wage of sin is death. All right, but why did he have to die in Jerusalem? Because that's where the temple of sacrifice was. That's why it was a fitting place for the ultimate sacrifice of the ultimate lamb. Now, Jesus died on the cross, as Brother Mark just showed, but can we say that God died on the cross? 
This is an age-old question. We cannot say that the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit suffered and died on the cross, although he who died as God, Jesus. What we say is the second person of the Trinity, the divine person in his human nature that he assumed at the hypostatic union suffered and died. The God-man died on the cross. And so we can say that God died on the cross according to Thomas Aquinas. Not the Godhead, but the God-man. So <clears throat> a Protestant might tell us, God paid all this debt. The work is done. Jesus paid all the debt. We get the glorification automatically. <clears throat> and the answer would be as Catholics, well, not so fast. The wound of sin is healed. It's forgiven. But the scar on the body of Christ, the sin that, that scar or the sin that caused that scar must be also taken care of. It must be atoned for. When we do this, we are then reconciled back to God. We are redeemed, we are forgiven, so the wound is healed. But the scar still remains, that has to be atoned for. And when that is atoned for, we are then glorified. Amazing, that's why exitus reditus, I told you the three great acts of God's mercy are creation, redemption, we are forgiven, but then glorification, the third person of the Holy Spirit. We are glorified, brought back into reconciliation. That is mercy. That's why mercy is greater than forgiveness. Incredible. This is mercy. And that's why Divine Mercy Sunday is all about atonement for sins. The punishment, not just the sin is forgiven, but the atonement for the scar on the body of Christ of what your sins did and my sins did is also wiped out so we can be glorified. Sorry, I'm getting too worked up, but this is amazing stuff. All right. The greatest mercy is to remove sin, but sometimes this causes us suffering because what's taken away from us, we were attached to. Like maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend that were having sexual relations before marriage is removed from us. We suffer because we were attached to that sin. In the diary of 299, Jesus told St. Faustina to hide in the rays of his mercy, you know, the red and the white, from the wrath of his father. We're going to talk about the father next week. Was he really wrathful? Does that mean he wants to come and crush you as a sinner? No. What Father Seraphim says is the father is going to strike at sin. Okay, if this is sin, I'm holding it as a cell phone. Yeah, sometimes it can be, unfortunately, for many people. But if this is sin, God the father is going to strike at it. The reason Jesus said, hide in my rays from the wrath of the father is that the Father's going to strike in his wrath at this sin. And if I'm holding on to it, if I'm holding on to this sin, when the Father strikes at it, I'm going to get zapped too. So this is why Jesus says, let it go and hide in my rays. Let go of those, those attachments. And this is, this is why it's so important. You know, the Old Testament figures, they wanted to know what God looked like. This is who Jesus just told St. Faustina, hide in my race. Let's look at our next slide. This is who God the Father looks at like. This is the face of the Father's mercy. Jesus is the face of the Father's mercy. How do we know this? Misericordia voltus, the face of the Father's mercy. The face of mercy. Jesus said in the scriptures, who has seen me has seen the Father. 
When you gaze upon this image, you're looking at the mercy of the Father encapsulated. God's love, when experienced by his creatures, is mercy. That's love of God flowing out to mankind. We are called to be the faces of the Son's mercy, just like the Son was called to be the face of the Father's mercy. How can we do that? Through our works of mercy. Remember, the book of James says, faith without works is dead. We don't mean works of the law, works of love. All right, and where sin abounds, mercy abounds even the more. That's why this is the time of mercy. Look at our next slide. Even Pope Francis announced to celebrate Jesus as the year of mercy. Even though that image I'm not so sure about, but hey, okay. This is what it was. It is the forgiving of debt. What is a year of mercy? That tradition goes back to the Old Testament. Forgiving debt and set of captives free. But who had the authority to do that? To free debt, forgive debt, and set captives free. Guess who had the authority in ancient Israel to do that? It was either the priest, an acknowledged prophet, or the king. Guess what? Those are the three offices of Jesus Christ. Priest, prophet, and king. A priest sacrifices, Jesus sacrificed. A prophet teaches, Jesus taught. A king governs, Jesus governs his kingdom. And we too, at our baptism, share in those three offices. You are a priest, a prophet, and a king. And a priest offers sacrifice. That's why you can make that prayer, eternal father, I offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's the Divine Mercy Chaplet. People always say, Father, I can't make that prayer. I'm not a priest. I can't offer sacrifice. Yes, you are. You are a priest by virtue of your baptism. And a priest offers sacrifice. So if you can't make it to Mass, you've heard me say this. What's the next best thing? You pray the rosary. It's like the first part of the Mass. Liturgy, the Word. You meditate on Scripture. The rosary is not a bunch of Hail Marys. It's a meditation on scripture, like the first part of Mass, the liturgy of the word. But then, the second part of Mass is like the liturgy of the Eucharist, or it is the liturgy of the Eucharist. What happens then? The priest offers sacrifice. So when you, as a priest of the common priesthood, by your baptism, pray, Eternal Father, the chaplet of divine mercy, I offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity, you're exercising your priesthood. Wow, incredible. All right. So Jesus was the ultimate high priest. He was not only a priest in offering sacrifice, he was the victim being offered. So Jesus was both the one offering the sacrifice and the one being offered. So Christ is one mediator. You've heard this before. You crazy Catholics, you don't understand. Only Jesus is the one mediator. Yes, this is true. Christ stands between God and sinful man. He is the one mediator. He offers to God prayers and satisfaction for mankind as a man. But he also offers a sacrifice to God as God. Both man, he offers prayer as a man to God, and to God he offers sacrifice as God. Remember the Mass is God offering God to God. God the Holy Spirit offering God the Son in sacrifice to God the Father. Incredible. 
As the body of Christ, we also participate as sub-mediators. We are. We pray for each other, like at the Mass. Jesus is the Redeemer. People get freaked out when they hear us say Mary is co-redeemer. All right, let's explain that. Mary is co-redemptress, not co-redeemer. That's the, fem the masculine. All right? Jesus is the Redeemer, but Mary is co-redemptress. What does that mean? She participated. She gave Jesus his human nature. He didn't get it without her. Co, she is co-redemptrix. Co in Latin is cum, C-U-M. It doesn't mean equal to, it means with. This is powerful. Because remember, in the garden, who did Satan overthrow? The man or the woman? Did Satan overthrow Adam or Eve? All the boys say he overthrew the woman. All the girls say Satan overthrew the man. He overthrew both. And if Satan overthrew both a man and a woman, he overthrew Adam and Eve, it's going to take both Adam and Eve or a new Adam and a new Eve to liberate humanity back from Satan. If Satan overthrew both a man and a woman, it's going to take both a man and a woman to liberate humanity from Satan. That man, the new Eve, is of course Jesus, the main one, the mediator, but a co-redemptress is the woman, the new Eve. All right. Now, Jesus is God. We know this, but sometimes we only see him as God. We need to start seeing him in his humanity. And then we can learn more about his divinity. Remember, let's go to our next slide. Jesus in his humanity is a friend. And what does a friend do? A friend consoles each other. Jesus is a friend who consoles us. So we need to console him. This is the whole premise of Father Mike's consoling the heart of Jesus. We can console Jesus by also consoling the members of his body. This is true, each other. But we must also console him. This is powerful. You know, Jesus told Margaret Mary Alacoque to behold his heart. All right? This is, this is power. Mother Teresa said, let's look at our next slide, that she found Christ through the words, I thirst. And so Jesus is asking us to console him. I thirst. Okay? This is powerful. This is about him, not just about the members of the body. This is why atheists, I hear a lot of people say, well, Father, he doesn't believe in God, but he's a really good man. He takes care of other people. Well, that's okay. That's good. That's a start. That means he's taking care of the body of Christ. But what good is a body without a head? If you're not also consoling the head, the body bears no life. And so these atheists who say, I don't worry about believing in God. I'm a good person. I take care of other people. You're only doing the part of the care of the body. You need to also console the head. That is why the good atheists still lack. All right, this is also why we console Jesus as the head, like the angel did, and not just the members of his body. You know, Pius XI said, when attacks happen against the church, it's not just against the body, it's also the attack of the head. This is why our next slide shows St. Paul. 
There is St. Paul leading the martyrdom of St. Stephen. He was stoned, put to death. Paul did that. He persecuted the church. But then what did Jesus say? He said, Saul, when you persecute the church, you persecute me because he is the head. Mother Teresa said, Jesus is still a living person, not just an idea. So he doesn't suffer any more physically or psychologically like we do, but he's united to us when we suffer, just like a mom. A mom suffers most when her child is sick, even more than herself. And this, in a way, is why Jesus is still on the cross. As long as we are suffering, in a way, he still is too. Mary at Fatima said her heart was sourful because of the suffering of her children. Wow. So why do we console him? This is important. It goes back to the school of trust. It goes back to God wanting us to trust him. After the fall, we now naturally fear God. He is this ogre. The catechism tells us man let trust in his creator die in the garden. Sin begins, it says, with a lack of trust. So here's how it's connected. God wants us to trust him <clears throat> so that he can woo us back as his bride. Remember, he's the spouse. God's new covenant is one of doing that. The new covenant is one of love and marriage. And that new covenant comes to us in the flesh of Jesus Christ. But to do that marriage, you won't marry a spouse unless you trust them. So Jesus, who goes from, from God to Savior to man to friend to spouse, we need to trust every step of the way. So that's why my next slide shows the little baby Jesus. He wants us to trust him. Well, that's why he came as a baby. Who, who's afraid of a little baby? They have no teeth. They can't even bite, as I said before. Who's afraid of a good man? We all agreed earlier, Jesus is a good man. He was good to all he met. He healed them, forgave them, he fed them. Who's afraid of the greatest love that you could ever show your loved ones? A love to die for them and lay down your life? You're not afraid of that, you trust that. If somebody's willing to die for me, you better think I'm gonna trust them. Who's afraid of the divine mercy image that we showed earlier? That's how Jesus came to the apostles. He didn't punish them. He blessed them. So God wants to win back our trust by showing us how much he loves us. Then he can marry us. Yes, God doesn't need us, and he didn't have to do all this, but he wanted to. Why? Because he desires to be with us forever. But so many will reject this gifts this gift or gifts, and this pains him. And when this pains him, we should console him. But how do we console Jesus? This is one of the arguments many people make. He's totally happy. He doesn't need us. True. Well, Father, if Jesus is totally happy in heaven, he doesn't need consoling. Well, let's look at St. Faustina said in our next two slides. All right. It seems to me, St. Faustina said, as though Jesus could not be happy without me. Amazing. 
nor could I without him. Although I understand that being God, yes, he is happy in himself and has absolutely no need of any creature, still his goodness compels him to give himself to the creature and with a generosity which is beyond understanding. I do not know how to live without God, but I also feel that God, absolutely self-sufficient though he is, cannot be happy without me. Are you kidding? This is unbelievable. All other gods in all other religions aren't like this. They are transcendent. They would not care this much about us. They're disciplinarians. No other god would condescend to become one of us and die for us, especially out of love. The god of Islam is a disciplinarian. This is Abba, Father a God foreign to all other religions. Although God doesn't need us, true, as St. Faustina said, he chose to become one of us out of love. The basis of humanity of the Jews was the heart, not the brain. You know, we don't have the most sacred brain of Jesus as one of our feasts. We have the sacred heart of Jesus. And at the incarnation, he assumed a human heart, <clears throat> That's why we have the sacred heart devotion. To see Jesus in his humanity, his heart was filled with the desire, not only to love, but also be loved. Powerful. He made himself vulnerable with a need to be loved. This is why he said he thirsts. By quenching that thirst for his love, by loving him in return, we have mercy on him and we console him. Let's read what John Paul II said in the next two slides. John Paul II said, he himself seems to merit the greatest mercy and to appeal for mercy when he is arrested, abused, condemned, scourged, crowned with thorns, when he is nailed to the cross and dies amidst agonizing torments. It is then that he particularly deserves mercy from the people to whom he has done good and he does not receive it. Whoa. All right. All right. Why did he make himself vulnerable like this? For the sake of our friendship. On the night Jesus began his passion, in the upper room he said, no longer do I call you slaves. I call you friends. You know, Aristotle said, now I'm bringing you into my philosophy training. I did my, my seminary at um, Dominican House and Holy Apostles. And I did my philosophy at Franciscan University. Great place. And there I learned that Aristotle said, friendship cannot be one-sided. It must both go, it must go both ways and we must console the other. How can it be true friendship if we are the only ones in need and our prayer is only about me, me, me. Jesus, I need this. I want that. Please do this. Please do that. No, spend some time in prayer saying, Lord, nobody's here visiting you. I remember when I was in Michigan, I finally found an open church and I went there and it was open and there wasn't a single person in there. The first thing I did was apologize to God that all these other people outside, cars roaring by, people out having fun and nobody's in there with them. That was the first thing I did. Wow. 
John Paul said, I am convinced that the objective starting point of love is the realization that I am needed by another. And so in a way, Jesus is telling us, I need your time. Now, yes, he doesn't need it as God. He needs nothing, but he desires it. John Paul II says, this is mercy when it is bilateral. Both the giver and the receiver are blessed. You know, it's funny. We are not doing true acts of mercy unless that we see that we are benefiting more as the giver than the receiver is. You always hear that it's better to give than to receive. You know what? When there's a poor person that you have the opportunity to help, you benefit more than they do because you're exercising charity. You're giving, not just receiving. And in fact, you do receive the rewards of the merits of God. It's beautiful. The suffering of the poor and those in need gives you a chance to be charitable. The sick give you a chance to pray for them. Mercy, as we said before, remember, mercy is a particular mode of love that when love encounters suffering, it takes action to do something about it. So mercy is, mercy is love when it sees suffering and says, I'm not just going to say, oh, that's too bad. I'm going to do something about it. It makes it your own. And this is why the missionaries of charity, the community of Mother Teresa, they do a holy hour to quench the thirst of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I thirst. Before they go to the poor, they console the head first before the body. We always think we just need to console the body, the people who are hurting. We also console the head. Having mercy on Jesus is the foundation of showing mercy to your neighbor. We sometimes think it's the opposite. Fact, and I'm wrapping up here, we even have retroactive consolation. This is amazing. God is outside of time. You know, he saw God sees all things eternally, past, present, and future, all at once. This is the premise of my book. And he saw all things at his passion. I want to wrap up with some really powerful things. Do you know that, yeah, it's true, our sins hurt Jesus, but do you know our acts of love sustained him when he was in his passion? How do we know this? Jesus said so. He told St. Faustina. So do you know you can, soul, you can console him now for the suffering he faced back at the cross? Do you know you can help Jesus now carry the cross at Calvary? Father, that's crazy. God is outside of time. Yes, he entered into time and humanity, but he's still the same person. Help him carry his cross. You know, many paintings show, famous paintings show saints standing at the foot of the cross. You know, the Divine Mercy Novena said, bring to me those who have separated from the church. They have pained me during my passion. Now, wait a minute. All those who separated from the church had to be after the passion of Jesus because the church didn't exist yet. But Jesus said, all those who left the church pained me, pained, past tense, pained me during my passion. 
Well, if this is the case, that's why Jesus also said in the same thing of the novena of the Divine Mercy Chaplet, bring me the souls of priests and religious because they sustain me during my passion. There were no priests or religious yet other than the apostles, and they certainly didn't sustain him during his passion. They ran away. So this shows that we can console Jesus even today. What hurt Jesus the most during his passion was the lukewarm sinner. And Jesus said, bring the lukewarm sinner to me. Don't be lukewarm. So I think this is powerful. You know, pious tradition with a small t says that in the garden, Jesus mocked, or excuse me, Jesus was mocked by Satan. Satan mocked Jesus by pointing to him all the people that would reject his love throughout the ages. In the garden, Jesus saw Hitler, Stalin, Mao Tung, so much sin. And Satan was mocking him. Look at all these people who've rejected you. Then, our next slide, the angel came. And the angel came to comfort him. And pious tradition is, the angel showed him all our acts of love. Now, there couldn't be any acts of love at the time in the agony in the garden because nobody knew yet what Jesus was going to be God and resurrect from the dead. This was all stuff that would come in later generations. So last half a page, thank you for staying with me. If we are disposed at mass, we can even be mystically transported back to Calvary and be present at Christ's crucifixion. That's what the mass is. We are there as Christ is paying our debt to sin. That's why the catechism said is the paschal mystery is the one event that transcends, means it goes above time and eternity. It's ever present. Wow. That's the power of the Mass. And through the power of the Mass, through that perfect prayer, remember I said in my other talks in the past, Mass is the only perfect form of prayer. And when you pray at Mass, your prayer is perfected. And that prayer, too, can transport you through divine eternity. What do you mean, Father? All right. If you meditate on Jesus as a baby, we showed that earlier, you are there. You are there next to that Christ child. And guess what? Humility comes to you in the form of a baby with no teeth who can't bite. If you pray and meditate on Jesus' public ministry, you are there. And healing and truth come to you. Because during his ministry, Jesus brought healing and truth. If you pray and meditate on his passion, you are there as salvation comes to you. Especially at the Mass, you are physically there. Pope Benedict said when you're at the Mass, the roof of the church opens and heaven and earth ascend and descend. And sacred time, time of eternity, is united with historical time. Tick-tock on our, our watch time. And it's united and you are there. Do you know that's why Christ is alive 
in both scripture and the mass. It's the living word, not the words recorded of a dead man. It's the living word in the scriptures and the living body in the mass. How can you get more than that? John Paul II even said the rosary mystically transports us to the side of Mary. It's more than just reciting Hail Marys. It's being mystically transported to the side of Mary as she recalls the mysteries of Christ because she was there for it all. What better guide? That's why we say to Jesus through Mary. That's what Marian consecration is. Mary guiding us to Jesus. All right. Last paragraph. So remember... Jesus starts with being God. Then he goes to being our savior. Then he goes to being a man. Then he goes to being a friend. Then he goes to being our spouse for all eternity. Many weddings happened in the Bible. Many references. You know, the Song of Songs is about a woman waiting for her groom. Did you know Jesus' first miracle? was at a wedding. Adam fell asleep and his bride was created from his side. Jesus too fell asleep into a deep sleep on the cross and his bride, the church, came from his side when he was pierced and the blood and the water flowed out from his side. Wow. Jesus said, that he will go to prepare a house for us in heaven. Where does that come from? A Jewish man always went to build a house for his future bride to show that he could provide for her. Only then was the marriage consummated. The Bible is about bride and groom. So we will wed to God in heaven one day, but it starts here today at the Mass. Consummation at this holy altar. As you come up as the bride, as in any wedding, who's there to meet you at the altar, the groom, and what happens? The groom enters into you, the bride. So therefore, do Catholics have a personal relationship with Jesus? That's all that matters. All this other stuff you said, Father Chris, doesn't matter in the least. All you need is a personal relationship with Jesus. Okay, we just finished right there. Because when you received Holy Communion, you now have Jesus inside of you. You now have him dwelling in your soul. And you can't get a more personal relationship than having someone dwell in your soul. Amen. Amen. Alleluia. Alleluia. God bless all of you for sticking with us. You know, we are so happy to have you members of our Marian family. I, I have such joy when I read the comments and I see people saying, this is our family. We had no idea when the coronavirus happened that God would bring this kind of greater good. Many of you coming back to your faith, understanding your faith, and you cannot love what you do not know. And so by helping know your faith better, you're loving your faith better. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Be a part of our Marian family by joining us every Saturday here. This is live. But also, Mark, Father, Brother Mark could show the last slide. Being a Marian helper, it's very simple. Go to micprayers.com. And there, it takes less than 10 seconds. There's no cost 
It just unites us in prayer so that you can receive the graces of all our prayers, penances, masses, rosaries, just like you were a Marian of the Immaculate Conception. God bless all of you, and we hope to see you next week as we talk about who God the Father is and who this God of the Old Testament is. Believe it or not, he is a God of mercy. And let us ask this Heavenly Father to come down upon us this week to guide us, bless us, and protect us. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why be a Marian helper? Because we Marian Fathers celebrate a Mass for you and all our members each and every day. You can share in all the prayers, good works, and merits of all the Marian priests and brothers around the world. And now you can share the graces just as if you were a Marian priest or brother. Every All Souls Day, we see a Mass for all the deceased members of the Association of Marian Helpers. Again, there's no way that after we die, we can help ourselves. But we have to rely on the prayers of those here on earth. And we, members of the Marian Fathers, will be praying for you as a deceased member of our association. You can share in the graces of the perpetual novena to the Divine Mercy. Remember, Jesus told St. Faustina that the Chaplet of Divine Mercy is one of the most powerful prayers we can make. And every day here at the Shrine of Divine Mercy, we pray it and you can share in those graces. So if you have any questions or you want to learn more how to be a Marian helper, please visit micprayers.com or call 1-800-462-7426 and let me personally pray for you and your loved ones. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign-up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.